This is Who Deserves a Monument, Episode 7. Yeah, it, it was a little funny. Um, my mom was with me in my home on Long Island, and we received a telephone call. And the person said, um, may I speak with Mrs. Morgan? Um, this is the president of the United States. So I said, yeah, sure. You know, I'm whoever you are. You know, I'm not in the mood for your jokes. And I hung up the phone. So a few minutes later, the phone rang again. And the person said, no, I'm really the president of the United States. And if you don't believe me, this is my number in the Oval Office. Have her call me back. So I said, okay. <laughs> I hung up the phone and I said, you know, this could really be legit. So I got my mom and we called. And sure enough, it was uh, President Clinton, and he invited her to the White House, and he told her that he wanted to present her uh, with the Presidential Citizens uh, Medal uh, in D.C. And she was extremely surprised. Uh, she was humble because she never sought any attention or recognition. So she a complete shock and a surprise. She never, they never explained to her where it came from. Turns out that a lot of stuff came from Irene Morgan herself. But have you ever heard of her? I surely hadn't. When the students at City Neighbors High School told me that there was a woman who refused her seat on a bus 11 years before Rosa Parks, I had to know if it was true. I mean, I know you've heard of Rosa Parks, when American schoolchildren were asked to name a historical figure, Rosa Parks was the second most popular name they gave, of all people in American history. Her simple story of resistance has become folklore. But it's not so simple, and neither was she. So before we talk about Irene Morgan, let's really get to know Rosa Parks. The story goes that Rosa Parks was a seamstress who refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, because her feet were tired. Like, she was just too tired to stand up, so she didn't. She was arrested, and then buses were desegregated, right? Well, not quite. Like much of history, the way her story is told glosses over a lot that's important. First of all, Rosa Parks wasn't just a seamstress. She was a highly trained, highly active activist. She had been challenging white supremacy for years before she became famous for refusing to give up her seat on a bus in 1955. She was the secretary of the local NAACP branch, and she spent a decade pushing for voter registration, seeking justice for Black victims of sexual violence, supporting wrongfully accused Black men, and pressing for desegregation of schools and public spaces. From her childhood, she talked openly about racism and inhumane treatment she fought white bullies. She told her grandmother, I would rather be lynched than live to be mistreated and not be allowed to say, I don't like it. She was committed to nonviolent direct action. She called Malcolm X her personal hero. I watched several interviews with Rosa Parks spanning decades. She tells her story the same way every time. 
She didn't sit in the whites-only section, as newspapers reported at the time. And her feet weren't tired. Her soul was tired. On December 1st, 1955, the 42-year-old seamstress at the Montgomery Fair department store boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus to make the five-mile, 15-minute journey back to her apartment to cook dinner for her husband. Seeing that the bus was standing room only, she decided to do some Christmas shopping and wait for the next bus. Here's how the buses worked during Jim Crow. The first 10 rows of seats were reserved for whites and the last 10 for blacks. The 16 rows in the middle were first come, first serve, and the driver could rearrange passengers as needed. You know what? Why don't I just let Rosa Parks tell her own story? About six o'clock in the afternoon, I boarded the bus downtown Montgomery on Coach Square. As the bus proceeded out of town on the third stop, the white passengers had filled the front of the bus. When I got on the bus, the rear was filled with uh, colored passengers, and they were beginning to stand. The seat I occupied was the face of the seats where the Negro passengers uh, take as they on this route. The driver noted that the front of the bus was filled with white passengers, and there would be of two or three men standing, he looked back and asked that the seat where I had taken, along with three other persons, one in the seat with me, and two across the aisle was seated. He demanded the seat that we were occupying. The other passengers very reluctantly gave up their seats, but I refused to do so. I want to make very certain that it is understood that I have not taken a seat in the white section as has been reported in many cases. An article came out in the newspaper on Friday morning about the Negro woman overlooked segregation. She was seated in the front seat, the white section of the bus, and refused to take a seat in the rear of the bus. That was the first newspaper account. The seat where I occupied, we were in the custom of taking this seat on the way home even though at times on this on the same bus route, we occupied the same seat with white standing if their space had been taken up, the seats had been taken up. She sat in the front row of the middle section, next to a black man and across from two black women. When a group of white people boarded, they were one seat short. The driver got up and asked all four black people to move, to stand in the back because there were no more seats. Three of them did move, just not Ms. Parks. She said, I got here first. I paid the same for my ticket. I'm not in the white section. And there are three other seats. I'm not moving. I was very much surprised that the driver at this point demanded that I remove myself from the seat. The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police. Rosa Parks always checked to see who was driving the bus. Twelve years earlier, a crude and racist driver had physically removed her after she refused to exit and reboard the bus from the back. For 12 years, she managed to spot him and avoid boarding his bus. But on that fateful day in 1955, she somehow missed him. And I told him, just call the police. 
he then called the officers of the law. They came and placed me under arrest. Violation of the segregation law of the city and state of Alabama transportation. I didn't think I was violating any. I felt that I was not being treated right and that I had a right to retain the seat that I had taken as a passenger on the bus. The time had just come when I had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, I suppose. They placed me under arrest. And I wasn't afraid. I don't know why I wasn't, but I didn't feel afraid. I, I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. And I was bond, bailed out shortly after the arrest. The trial was held December 5th on the next Monday, and the protest began from that day, and it is still continuing. Rosa Parks's arrest spurred a massive 381-day boycott of the buses in Montgomery. They began the next day. You might wonder, you should wonder, how is this possible? She definitely wasn't the first person to do what she did. Nine months before Rosa Parks refused her seat, 15-year-old Claudette Colvin refused her seat in the very same city and was also arrested. That's to say nothing of the more than 100 years of people refusing to be put in subpar accommodations on steamships, railroads, and buses. Remember Carl Murphy? He got arrested for the same thing on a train. Jackie Robinson refused his seat on a bus while a soldier at Fort Hood, and he was court-martialed. I read so many stories of people doing the same things throughout the 40s and the 50s. It just goes to show that you can't just start a movement. All the conditions have to be perfect, and even then, it might not amount to anything. Well, the NAACP in Montgomery had been planning such a challenge for months. And while what she did was indeed spontaneous— Rosa Parks was in on those conversations. She knew they were ready for a fight. And she knew about the power of nonviolent action from a group of activists moved to test the bounds of segregation by the bold action of one Irene Morgan. In 1944, 11 years before Rosa Parks, 26-year-old Irene Morgan was arrested in Virginia for refusing to yield her seat. I cannot see how anyone would not have done the same way, would not have responded. Of course. Now, have you met Rosa Parks? No, I haven't. Really? Oh. So, who was she, and why don't we know about her? Here's Irene's daughter, Brenda Backey. We were, when my brother and I were young, my mom used to take us to the movies. And in those years, um, uh, before the movie started, Everyone, um, every patron in the theater had to stand up, put your hand over your heart, and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And I can remember my brother and I were small, and we started to get up. And my mother said, sit down. And we'd say, Mom, you know, everybody in the theater is up. And my mother said, sit down. Don't move. So she said, when the flag respects us, we will respect it. And of course, the other people in the theater would yell at her, communist, communist, you know, get her out of here, that kind of thing. And um, my, mother, my mother would say, um, no, 
You know, we're going to sit here. We're going to watch the movie. We paid like everyone else. Um, but we will not stand until the flag respects us. Irene Morgan was born Irene Amos on April 9, 1917, in Baltimore, into a working-class family of Seventh-day Adventists. She came of age during the Great Depression, and times were tough for her, just like everyone else. She married a man named Sherwood Morgan, and together they built a family. Here's historian Ray Arsenault. And she lived in Baltimore, where she worked in a B-26 marauder Bomb, bomber factory. Her husband was a stevedore who worked on the docks in Baltimore, and her husband had very little money. They were, you know, working class at best. She had had to drop out of school, as her husband had, to support her family. She'd worked at a series of odd jobs throughout her life as a domestic and as various you know, menial jobs. But I think everyone in her family knew, and everyone who knew her, that she was unusually bright. And uh, she was, you know, someone who certainly could have done very well in higher education. And, and, and she also always had a great sense of herself. Irene Morgan had two children, a son and a daughter, when she suffered a miscarriage. Here's her daughter, Brenda, again. My mom suffered a miscarriage in 1944. And she decided to go to Gloucester, Virginia to recuperate for a while with her mother. So we traveled, uh, my mother, my brother, and myself, traveled to Gloucester, Virginia. And my mom spent a few days with her mom. And she left us in the care of our grandmother. And she decided to return back to Baltimore. So she went to, they had a little store, it was called Hayes Store, um, a quarter of a mile from the house. So she went to the store, she bought the ticket at the store and waited. She had her suitcases and everything and she boarded the bus right there at Hayes. Um, as the bus was traveling along um, in route to Baltimore, um, in those days, if you were traveling and you wanted the Greyhound bus, all you had to do basically was stand outside on the side of the road with your luggage and the bus driver would stop. Ray Arsenault continues the story. So it's, she's technically an interstate passenger. Her ticket uh, allowed her to go all the way to Baltimore. And when she got on that bus that morning, uh, in July 16th, 1944, she had never uh, been involved in any real activism. And uh, though in Baltimore, she was obviously familiar with, with segregation, discrimination, but she'd become like an urban person, different than her family that lived in this Tidewater, Virginia, rural county, which had a very heavy plantation heritage a lot of ex-families who had been slaves and sharecroppers in the 19th century after the Civil War. Anyway, she got on the bus and it was very crowded. Um, and uh, she actually had uh, no, pl no place to sit, but the, uh, there was a woman there who offered to let her sit on her lap. She could see that she was not strong. I don't think she explained that she had had a miscarriage, but you could see she 
it would be difficult for her to stand on a long bus trip. So she sat on the, on the woman's lap and it was near, near the back of the bus, about three seats from the back. Irene travels 26 miles like this to Saluda, Virginia, sitting on a woman's lap. Oh, here I go again, letting other people tell a woman's story. Here's Irene Morgan herself. So my passengers uh, got on, and the uh, bus driver told me that I would have to move. There were no seats at all there. And uh, I, I refused to move. And that's when he got off the bus, got the sheriff. And the sheriff came in and said, I'm going to arrest you. And I said, that's perfectly all right. Then he asked the girl in the seat next to me uh, to move. The girl had her baby in her arms, about, I guess about five or six months old. And uh, she was going to Ardmore, Pennsylvania. And she started to get up to move. And I snatched her back because I'm wondering, where are you going? I said, where are you going with that baby in your arms, you know? And then he handed me this piece of paper, supposed to be a warrant. So I just took it and tore it up and just threw it out of the window. So then when he put his hands on me, you know, to arrest me, well, I was furious with him at the time, and that's when I kicked him. And I started to bite him, but he looked dirty, so I, I couldn't bite him. But anyway, he was bowed over. He was really in pain, so he, he couldn't do anything. So he got off the bus. He was turning all colors. He got off the bus. Here's Ray Arsenault again. They already had a warrant for her arrest. And she ripped it up and threw it on the floor. And they were stunned. And so they really, they knew they really had a troublemaker here. And so they tried to, to, to drag her off the bus. Uh, at which point um, she, uh, I guess, kneed or kicked one of the deputies um, in his crotch. She did a, quite a job of it because he, he sort of went down and then kind of crawled off the bus. So she's already taken out one deputy, and another deputy comes on. Finally, they get her off the bus, but she fought them all the way. And uh, uh, she, she simply wouldn't give up physically until they, until they restrained her and, and, and took, her, took, her, took her to the local jail. This was Irene Morgan's first run-in with the law. It was a whole new experience for her. They charged her with two crimes. First, for resisting arrest. And second for violating the segregation law. This second charge is important. And uh, so she went before the judge, Judge Mitchell. He said, well, you, uh, you, you're guilty. And she said, yes, I, I'll plead guilty to the resisting arrest and I'll pay the $100 fine, uh, but I'm not going to submit to the second charge. And the fine there, I think was only $5, but she would not pay the $5 and she would not plead guilty. And so they put her in jail. So she's in jail. They don't give her a phone call. She's got no way of letting her family know what's happened. She's 26 miles away from her mom's house, but she's got a window in her jail cell. Here's Brenda again. And a little while later, a boy was walking across um, at the back of the jail. And she saw him, a little black kid. And she saw him and she beckoned him over. And he came over to the cell window. And she explained to him what had happened, what happened. And asked if there was somehow he could get information back to my grandmother to let her know that, you know, my mom was arrested and where she was. So he did just that. And somehow um, this young kid managed to 
get back to Gloucester and give the information to my grandmother. And at that time, uh, my grandmother, along with uh, prominent minister Nelson Carter and other Gloucester residents came together and got the money to bail her out. So they went there and posted the bail and got her out. She might have been really in, uh, in danger if she'd stayed in jail because she was now she's marked as a troublemaker, of course. And uh, so anyway, she, she has the bond and she, she, she appeals the conviction. So Irene Morgan stands her ground on the segregation law charge and appeals the conviction in the local court. She can't afford an attorney, so she represents herself. And she loses. But she's not about to give up. She appeals to the Virginia Supreme Court. Remember, she's appealing a $5 fine. She's already paid $100 for the resisting arrest charge and $500 for bond. But she will not pay the $5 for violating the segregation law. At this point, her case catches the attention of the Virginia NAACP, who's been looking for a test case for years to try to strike down the constitutionality of the state's segregated transit law. Three lawyers in particular jump at the opportunity. Here's Ray Arsenault. Foxwood Robinson, known as Spot Robinson, Oliver Hill, and Martin Martin. And when they heard about the young woman from Baltimore uh, who had represented herself, and once they met her, they saw how presentable, she was very attractive, well-spoken, an ideal uh, client for them. And so they called Thurgood Marshall in Washington from NAACP Legal Defense Fund, of course, who had who had argued meant most of the big cases. He and Charles Hamilton Houston were the leading attorneys for, had been for the NAACP. And he said, yeah, that's the one. And Virginia was particularly important uh, because that's the state where the troubles began. If you were on a bus coming south from Boston or New York, it, it was really when you hit Virginia, when they would they would try to enforce the segregation laws. Uh, where they make you, you'd have to get up and get in the back of the bus and, or, or the back of the railway car. So Virginia was sort of the battleground, the contested terrain on, on, on these matters. So we've got the Episode 5 Dream Team back together again. Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston. Marshall now runs the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund in Washington. It's there to provide free legal counsel to people in civil rights cases. Here's Robin Washington. He's a public radio host and documentary filmmaker. What made this case interesting and attractive to the NAACP, uh, Oliver Hill, Spotswood Robinson, and Thurgood Marshall, was that it was exactly what they were looking for. In most cases, blacks who did defy Jim Crow on uh, buses in transportation or in any arena, uh, ultimately weren't charged by the local authorities or courts with violation, violating the Jim Crow laws. Instead, they were charged with disorderly conduct or, you know, failure to pay fines or something like that. And you, you know, could or couldn't dispute that. But the point was it never could be taken up to a larger court and start affecting the segregation laws. In this case, they messed up. <laughs> they charged her with violating the state Jim Crow law. And uh, you're talking about the crack legal team of the century. Uh, these guys were no slacks. 
Here's historian Ray Arsenault again. So uh, the, uh, the NAACP took her case uh, to the Virginia Supreme Court, but unanimously the court ruled against her, basically not really looking uh, at it in terms of a constitutional way, but just simply saying, look, this to, risk, to, to preserve order in Virginia, we have to have segregation. So we'll get there one way or another. We're not going to violate our own segregation law. And of course, that's exactly what the NAACP wanted. They wanted to lose at that level because they wanted to take it on appeal to the Supreme Court, which they did. It's time for a monumental moment, the Interstate Commerce Clause. In preparation for the Supreme Court case, the NAACP team filed a brief citing a case from way back in 1878 called Hall v. DeCure. This was unexpected, a really baller move. What happened was, Louisiana passed a law requiring full racial integration of transit, which at the time included railroads, streetcars, or riverboats. But those trains and boats passed through other states, states that were not required to integrate passengers. So the ruling in Hall v. DeCure invoked something called the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution which basically says that Congress can jump in and override state laws to make it easier to do business across several states. So Congress could say, your state law doesn't apply in this case. The same thing applied internationally. The ruling in Hall v. DeCure said that Louisiana's integration law was an undue burden on interstate commerce. So even though that case was about integration and not segregation, They wondered, would the same logic apply in Irene Morgan's case? Was upholding segregation in some states and not in others an undue burden on interstate buses? Thurgood Marshall argued the case for Irene Morgan. Here's Ray Arsenault. It was really quite quite an amazing scene with uh, Thurgood Marshall and Spotswood Robinson, who actually didn't have the... He did a lot of the brief preparation, but he he didn't have a, a license yet to to argue before the Supreme Court. He was a young attorney, and but he was there sitting with them in the Supreme Court. And uh, basically Thurgood Marshall made mincemeat out of, out of the Virginia Attorney General who argued the case for them. This was an interesting and favorable time for the Supreme Court. The court was down to seven members at this time. One justice had died and one left to go preside over the Nuremberg trials of the Nazis. Just two years earlier, this same court struck down the Texas white primaries, which had essentially ensured that a white candidate would win any election. That case, Smith v. Allwright, is right up there with Brown v. Board of Education as one of the most important legal wins against segregation. So perhaps it wasn't a surprise that the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Irene Morgan and against the state of Virginia in a 6-1 to decision. It was the first time the Supreme Court had overturned a Jim Crow law in transportation. Thurgood Marshall called it a decisive blow. Headlines in black newspapers read, Writers can't believe end of Jim Crow is here. But you guys are smart. This is episode seven. You've heard enough by now to know that just because something has changed at the federal level doesn't mean it amounts to a hill of beans at the state and local level. And it was the same here. 
Georgia's Governor Talmadge decided he'd just make interstate passengers get off the bus as they crossed into Georgia and buy new tickets just for their ride in Georgia, meaning they weren't technically interstate passengers after all, so the state didn't have to comply. The governor of Alabama called the ruling nothing but fertilizer for the Ku Klux Klan. A congressman from Mississippi called for the impeachment of every Supreme Court justice. The ruling was heavily celebrated as a landmark decision in the black press, and mostly ignored or marginalized in the white press. President Truman never acknowledged it. As time passed, it became increasingly clear that Southern officials were not going to enforce the ruling. The Interstate Commerce Commission of the Justice Department, they didn't push for it either. So some bus companies that initially voluntarily complied reversed their decisions and went back to segregation. The NAACP was resigned. Here's Ray Arsenault. We're not going to give up, but we're not going to emphasize this anymore because we won this case, but they they essentially stole it from us in the the aftermath. And so they went on to other other issues. Um, And and that's an incredibly important thing because um, the uh, sort of activists in the Congress of Racial Equality, which was a predominantly white civil rights organization, they, they decided, well, if, if the NAACP can't win in the courts, we're going to take the struggle out of the courtroom and into the streets. It's time for another monumental moment, nonviolent resistance. When I think of nonviolent resistance, I think of Martin Luther King Jr., but it turns out it didn't actually start with him, and it wasn't always his method of choice. Nonviolent resistance began in India with Mohandas Gandhi, also known by his title of Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was a lawyer. I'll admit I didn't know that. I thought he was some sort of monk or religious cleric based on the photos we always see of him wrapped in a robe or a cloak. Turns out, while he was a practicing Hindu, he adopted the loincloth in the warmer months and the shawl in the winter in solidarity with India's rural poor. Gandhi was a lawyer and anti-colonialist who led India's campaign for independence from British rule. He organized peasants, farmers, and urban workers to protest against excessive taxes and discrimination. He fought for women's rights, religious tolerance, and self-rule for Indians. And importantly, he pioneered nonviolent resistance and mass acts of civil disobedience. He's perhaps best known for the Salt March, which took place from March to April 1930 in India to protest British law that prevented Native Indians from manufacturing or selling salt and instead forced them to buy it at a high cost from British merchants. Definitely has Boston Tea Party vibes, right? During the march, thousands of Indians followed Gandhi from his inland religious retreat on their way to the coast of the Arabian Sea, covering 240 miles. There, he planned to defy the salt tax by illegally harvesting salt from the coast. He and the marchers covered 12 miles per day, stopping to speak in towns along the way and gaining new supporters, new marchers. Thousands of marchers made up a miles-long procession, and they made it to the coast after 24 days of walking. Thousands of journalists and supporters gathered to watch him commit his symbolic crime. He took a quick and well-deserved dip in the sparkling Arabian Sea and emerged with a lump of salt. He held it high over his head and said, With this, I am shaking the foundations of the British Empire. His actions sent a signal to other Indians across the country to do the same. And over the next several weeks, 
supporters flocked to the seaside to harvest salt. The civil disobedience was widespread. 80,000 people were arrested, some beaten by police. When Gandhi himself was arrested and taken to jail, a group of 2,500 protesters made an unarmed advance on the jail to free him. Though they didn't fight back at all, his supporters were violently attacked by police. Scenes from the incident made the news across the world. The British were humiliated. Gandhi remained in jail for about a year. While he was there, Time magazine named him its 1930 Man of the Year. In 1931, Gandhi negotiated a pact with the government, which allowed Indians on the coast to produce their own salt. It would be another 16 years before they won their independence from Britain. But the salt march galvanized the masses and showed them the power of civil disobedience. Sadly, Gandhi was killed shortly after India won its independence. While it feels a world away, Gandhi's actions in India spurred a critical movement in the United States, a movement that would ultimately end racial segregation. In 1942, a group of black and white students in Chicago founded the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. They were a spin-off of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, an interfaith pacifist organization that included people of all different ideologies, Quakers, Christians, communists, all with nonviolence as their guiding principle. In the early 1940s, they were best known for organizing sit-ins at restaurants and roller rinks and were responsible for integrating Chicago's private sector. Chapters of CORE popped up around the nation. Some failed, some thrived. In 1946, inspired by Irene Morgan's victory in the Supreme Court, three CORE members, George Hauser, Bayard Rustin, and Jim Farmer, came up with a new strategy that would test enforcement of the law and bring attention to injustice. They called it the journey of reconciliation. Here's filmmaker Robin Washington again. So they invented, I have to use that word, uh, the idea of a freedom ride. We didn't call it that for another 20 years, but of whites and blacks traveling on the buses together. Uh, the strategy was brilliant. Uh, a white and black couple would sit up front or pair. A white and black pair would sit in back. Uh, they were all male. There was some controversy about that. Initially, it was supposed to be uh, uh, co-ed, if you will, or something like that. Uh, you know, it was supposed to be male and female, but there were warnings to them that if they uh, had um, both black and white, male and female, inevitably they could end up with a black man sitting next to a white woman, which would further incite the uh, angst uh, or ire of the Southern segregationists. For the journey of reconciliation, the first freedom ride, CORE sent 16 riders, eight white men and eight black men, to sit together on interstate buses that ran through the Upper South, think North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, and Kentucky. The purpose? To test whether or not bus companies were following the new Supreme Court ruling and allowing black passengers to sit in the front. Here's Robin Washington. So they sat next to each other, a white and black pair up front in the bus, uh, a white and black pair in back, and somebody traveling incognito for two purposes. One, to sway public opinion. So if something happened on the bus and uh, the driver said, you got to move or whatever, uh, and they would be delayed inevitably, the incognito rider would say something like, I think we should just keep going. I got to get to Cleveland or wherever they were going. Yeah. Well, maybe not Cleveland, but Knoxville, you know. And, um, and the other purpose of that incognito rider 
uh, again, they were tacticians and very practical, was to carry the bail money. <laughs> because you needed to get out of jail and you weren't going to spend this whole trip locked up. As the riders boarded the buses, they were accompanied by Ollie Stewart of the Afro-American and Lem Graves of the Pittsburgh Courier, two Black journalists who had agreed to cover the first week of the journey. The journey lasted two weeks on two bus companies, Trailways and Greyhound. Corps riders tested the bus companies 26 times and were arrested 12 times total, with only one incidence of a violent arrest. They were, however, harassed and threatened in many of the towns where they stayed overnight. The riders were proud of their accomplishment, showing that bus companies weren't following the new law. But it seemed that no one cared. No other reporters covered their act of civil disobedience. And that meant that no one knew. It turns out their timing was really bad. The journey of reconciliation occurred during Jackie Robinson's first few weeks in a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform. And the press and the nation were transfixed. Here's Robin Washington. So... Although they approved that point and they thought it was a success afterwards and other people on the buses and even trains started following their lead, uh, uh, ultimately it was not successful and it really was lost to history. While local NAACP lawyers represented the riders in most cases, the national NAACP did not support the journey of reconciliation. In fact, Thurgood Marshall had publicly criticized Corps' plans for direct action a few months prior without actually naming them. He said it would result in wholesale bloodshed. Bayard Rustin, one of the organizers, responded with his own op-ed in the Louisiana Weekly. He said, I am sure that Marshall is either ill-informed on the principles and techniques of nonviolence or ignorant of the process of social change. Unjust social laws and patterns do not change because Supreme Courts deliver just opinions. Social progress comes from struggle. All freedom demands a price. Here's Robin Washington. The Rigard Marshall uh, directly was not in favor of the journey of reconciliation. Uh, and it makes sense. Um, at the time, um, they just won Morgan. That was huge. They won it on the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. That was bizarre, right? Uh, so if you got out there and you were riding on buses and talking about, you know, segregation is wrong, that isn't going to further his cause. And worse, if you took the cases, you were actually going to end up retrying the same concepts in Morgan. Well, what does that mean? It means you have the opportunity to lose. You wouldn't want to do that. So the reason that three writers spent 22 days on a chain gang was that uh, the NAACP did not make good on their promise to represent them nationally. The local lawyers did, but not nationally. And the excuse by Thurgood Marshall was they lost the bus tickets. I highly doubt the crack legal team of the century lost the bus tickets needed for evidence. Of the 12 arrested, charges were dropped for eight and remained for four. At first, the four were given different sentences, with the North Carolina judge spouting off the worst racist and anti-Semitic tropes in his sentencing. He sentenced the defendants differently based on whether they were Black, white, or Jewish. Ultimately, a Superior Court judge sentenced all of them to the same fate, 30 days on a Chang gang, the maximum possible sentence. After leading multiple appeals for the riders, the NAACP was strapped for cash and decided not to appeal any further. 
Three of the defendants accepted their sentence and turned themselves in. One fought extradition to North Carolina. The three who reported ultimately served 22 days on a chain gang. Their experiences with inhumane conditions and brutal guards, especially Bayard Rustin's, soon became the stuff of legend among movement activists. Following his release, Rustin wrote 22 Days on a Chain Gang, a searing account of his incarceration that was later republished in the New York Post and the Afro-American. The piece shocked many readers and eventually led to a legislative investigation of conditions in North Carolina's prison camps. In Corr's final report on the journey of reconciliation, the authors wrote, The one word which most universally describes the attitude of police, of passengers, and of the Negro and white bus riders is confusion. Persons taking part in the psychological struggle in the buses and trains either did not know of the Morgan decision, or if they did, possessed no clear understanding of it. And yet there were clear indications that the confusion could be alleviated. As the trip progressed, it became evident that the police and the bus drivers were learning about the Irene Morgan decision as word of the test cases was passed from city to city and from driver to driver. It is our belief that without direct action on the part of groups and individuals, the Jim Crow pattern in the South cannot be broken. Ollie Stewart of the Afro-American newspaper hailed the journey as a watershed event. He wrote, for my part, I am glad to have had even a small part in the project, even that of an observer. History was definitely made. White and colored persons, when the whole thing was explained to them as they sat in their seats on several occasions, will never forget what they heard or saw. The white couple who went to the very back seat and sat between colored passengers. The white Marine who slept while a colored woman sat beside him. The white Southern girl who, when her mother wouldn't take a seat in the rear, exclaimed, I do not care, I'm tired. All these people now have an awareness of the problem. The journey of reconciliation with whites and colored traveling and sleeping and eating together, to my way of thinking, made the solution of segregation seem far more simple than it had ever been before. I heard one man refer to the group as pioneers. I think he had something there. They wrote a new page in the history of America. Here's Robin Washington. But the lessons from that were taken and used in other campaigns, and uh, most significantly the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, where Bayard directly uh, taught King, or well, he did teach King, and told King experiences. He had to talk about the journey. There's no way he didn't. So we're going to jump ahead from 1947 to 1956. CORE has continued to support student groups across the country and promote acts of civil disobedience, like sit-ins, and they've made quite a name for themselves. Now, spurred by Rosa Parks' refusal to give up her seat, there is a major boycott of the city buses in Montgomery. Black taxi drivers are offering highly discounted rates, and protesters with cars have organized sophisticated carpool operations to allow protesters to continue to travel around the city without using buses. Martin Luther King Jr., then a pastor in Montgomery, knows they have to make the most of the boycott, so he invites Journey of Reconciliation organizer Bayard Rustin to his house to share ideas. When Rustin arrives, he finds a house full of guns. Rustin tells King, you gotta believe me, nonviolence is the way to go. And King and his team come on board. The Montgomery bus boycott goes on for a year before courts finally hear a case challenging the constitutionality of segregation on the buses. That case, Browder v. Gale, was filed in federal district court two days after segregationists bombed King's house. 
The plaintiffs in the case were five women who had been mistreated on city buses, including 15-year-old Claudette Colvin, but intentionally not including Rosa Parks because she had other charges against her. The list of defendants included the Montgomery mayor, the police chief, the city bus line, a couple of drivers, and some other public officials. Of course, Baltimore's own Thurgood Marshall aided the lead attorney on the case. You have to remember, it's now 1956, and these civil rights attorneys have something very important in their pocket. The ruling from 1954's Brown v. Board of Education that said that segregation was unconstitutional. So we shouldn't be too surprised that they won this case, too. And the district court ruling was confirmed all the way up to the Supreme Court. Just a few days later, on December 20th, 1956, King and his supporters voted to end the 381-day Montgomery bus boycott. The Montgomery buses were integrated the following day. So, yay, it's all over, right? No. This ruling was narrow, just like Irene Morgan's ruling, so it really only affected Montgomery. Transit was still segregated all across the South. And even worse, the ruling in Browder v. Gale brought about a resurgence of white supremacists across the South, including the KKK and white citizens' councils. CORE didn't back down. They continued to organize and saw some success with sit-ins, spurred by four students at North Carolina A&T in 1960. With CORE's support, the sit-ins at lunch counters spread to more than 100 southern towns and cities over the spring of 1960. Then, another Supreme Court victory offered yet another chance to test enforcement. Fourteen years after Morgan v. Virginia banned segregation on interstate buses, Boynton v. Virginia banned segregation of interstate transportation facilities, like the terminals, the bathrooms, the lunch counters, the place where you hang out waiting for your bus. Here's Ray Arsenault describing Corps' executive director, Jim Farmer, on his first day on the job, February 1, 1961, just a couple of months after the Boynton v. Virginia decision. And he's, he's sitting there um, at his desk that first morning, and he's looking at all the, the correspondence. And there were a whole bunch of letters from, from uh, African-Americans saying, we thought there had been a Supreme Court decision. We know about the Morgan decision back in 1946, but there was also um, uh, Boynton versus Virginia. Bruce Boynton was a, a law student at Howard, came from a very famous civil rights family in Selma, Alabama. And in, in, in 1958, he went in to ask for, get a cup of coffee in the Trailways Terminal in Richmond, Virginia, and they wouldn't serve him. And so he sued. And in, on, in December of 1960, um, the, the, he won. Uh, so this is the se second case. So Jim Farmer is reading all of those letters at the core offices at the same time that two of his field secretaries get snowed in at a Howard Johnson restaurant on the New Jersey Turnpike. So random. They are stuck there overnight. They're talking about the state of the world. Somebody has Gandhi's biography, and they say, we should have a march to the sea, but it will be on buses, and we'll call it a freedom ride. They tell Jim Farmer, and it's on. This time, they included women, and this time, they penetrated the Deep South. Thirteen black and white women and men headed south from Washington, D.C. in the spring of 1961. Among them, future Atlanta congressman John Lewis. Ray Arsenault again. By the time the Freedom Rides begin in the spring of 1961, uh, they're not really committing civil disobedience per se because there were two Supreme Court decisions that told them 
they had the rights to sit anywhere they wanted on a on a bus or a train car and and they they couldn't be discriminated against in terms of segregation in the terminals in the, at the lunch counters because of the Boynton decision. Even so, this ride is nothing like the journey of reconciliation. As freedom riders travel into South Carolina, John Lewis and two others are viciously attacked as they attempt to enter a whites-only waiting area. Two days later, riders arriving in Anniston, Alabama, are met with an angry mob of 200 white people who surround the bus, and then, when the driver refuses to stop, chase it down the road in their cars. When the bus's tires eventually blow out, a white rioter throws a bomb onto the bus. The Freedom Riders escape the bus as it bursts into flames, only to be brutally beaten by the surrounding mob. A second bus in Birmingham meets a similar angry mob, and they're beaten too. Unlike the 1947 Freedom Rides, this time, the photos of the burning Greyhound bus and the bloodied riders appear on the front pages of newspapers around the country and around the world. A new group of Freedom Riders commits to finishing the journey, and Attorney General Robert Kennedy steps in to secure a new driver and police protection for them. But the police abandon the bus as it enters Montgomery and leave the riders to be attacked with baseball bats and clubs. Now Kennedy sends 600 federal marshals to Montgomery, and the governor declares martial law. Another group of Freedom Riders arriving in Jackson, Mississippi, are arrested for trespassing when they attempt to use the whites-only facilities. They are taken to the legendary, and not for good reasons, maximum security prison in Parchman, Mississippi. A judge who refuses to even look at them in court convicts them and sentences them to 30 days. But the NAACP appeals all the way to the Supreme Court, and they win. The violence and the attention just draws more Freedom Riders to the cause. In total, there are more than 60 Freedom Rides throughout the spring and summer of 1961. That fall, under pressure from the Kennedy administration, the Interstate Commerce Commission issues regulations prohibiting segregation in interstate transit terminals. So much came from Irene Morgan. Here's Ray Arsenault. In the documentary film that uh, Stanley Nelson did uh, based on my book, they interviewed me and I, we don't talk much about Irene Morgan, but I, I did say that probably without her, none of this would have happened or certainly wouldn't have happened in the way that it did. That, that she's really the, the long forgotten hero. Irene Morgan was on the front page for a brief moment, but she quickly became a footnote in history. Or for her, the ordinary person she'd always been. Her husband, Sherwood Morgan, passed away shortly after her case, and she remarried Stanley Kirkaldi and changed her name to Irene Kirkaldi. Together, they owned and operated house cleaning and child care businesses in Queens. Here's her daughter again. She left school at an early age, but her dream was always to finish school and to go on to college. So at age 62, um, she was accepted at St. John's University in Queens, New York, and she received a BA in communications um, and radio, television, and film was her minor. Um, she also went on to obtain a master's degree at Queens College in urban studies at age 72. Uh, she's always had a legacy of activism. 
By the time Robin Washington reached out to Irene for his documentary in the mid-90s, her story was largely forgotten. When we first started talking to her uh, before the actual interview and all, she felt guilty because she had thought that her right indeed did inspire other people and endangered them. And there was a black GI uh, who was arrested uh, for taking too long at a southern rest stop, whatever too long means, and he was beaten and his eyes were gouged out. Uh, Isaac Woodard. And um, there's a famous, horrible, horrific picture of him. And uh, Irene has seen that, and she saw that somewhere along the line, and thought that that had happened as a result of her case, that he was inspired by her. And I remember taking her aside. She had conflated what she did with what he did, and we made it clear to her, there's no reason for you to feel guilty. He had no knowledge of what you were doing when he had his incident. In fact, there were others who were inspired by her who won their cases. There was one, a guy named Charlie Hauser, um, who um, was thrown off a bus in North Carolina. This is after the journey of reconciliation, uh, but before the Freedom Rise, before the rulings come down from the Interstate Commerce Commission outlawing segregation further. Charlie Hauser was thrown off the bus and uh, he cited the Morgan decision, got a lawyer, and he sued the bus company. And there was a famous headline in the Mount Airy News proclaimed, This step cost Greyhound $2,000. And they had a picture of Charlie Hauser being thrown off the bus. <laughs> so, if anything, she inspired things more heroically. Uh, but, you know, that's again, it speaks to her caring. Her empathy, I just want to rest on the word empathy, right? Uh, that she would take responsibility uh, for somebody who had, in the end, nothing to do with what she did. If anything, she inspired people the other way. The documentary, You Don't Have to Ride Jim Crow, came out in 1995 on PBS. More than a million people have seen it. As we know from the top of the episode, it's not clear how President Clinton learned of Irene Morgan's heroics, but she was awarded the Presidential Citizens Medal in 2001. She and her family met other greats that day who were also being recognized, like Elizabeth Taylor for her work on AIDS, Muhammad Ali, Hank Aaron, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, a pastor and activist in Birmingham, civil rights leader Eleanor Holmes Norton, and David Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York. Good company. But other than that one day at the White House, Irene Morgan lived an ordinary life full of extraordinary care for others. Here's her granddaughter, Janine. Years later, I remember telling my friends and other people about it, and they were really shocked when I told them about the case. And they said, Grandma, I can't, I, that little old lady, I can't believe it. Because she was really kind and very genteel, but she, had, she was a proud person too, and she felt like what, that what she was doing was right. So if she was in the right, she was going to stand up for herself. But it wasn't her nature necessarily to be feisty or anything like that. You know, I can just think about during the holidays, my granddad um, would go out and pick up all these other friends and people that they had whose children were living in other states. And maybe they were elderly and they didn't have anyone nearby to watch over them. So my grandparents would watch over them. They, I remember times being a child when my grandfather would go. Um, and he would, they would pick up people from the Bowery and they would bring them home for like Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner and give them clothes. And, and we were like, who are these people? You know, as kids we were like, 
what, who are these strangers we're eating dinner with? But they were always welcoming people into their home. They were friends with people of different races and backgrounds and different religions. So I, I feel like that was also a lesson in growing up about, um, about humanity, about humanity, um, because we, we were really engaged with people of all different backgrounds and walks of life. Irene Morgan Kirkcaldy's family has another fun tradition. Here's her granddaughter, Janine, again. Yes, and yes. she, I tell you something, she loved You Don't Have to Ride Jim Crow, the Bayard Rustin song. She loved it. We sing it on June 3rd, which is her, um, the anniversary of her case when the Supreme Court handed down the decision. We sing, we call each other, we sing it to each other. She absolutely loved the song and she knew all the words. There's a reference to her in that song. Um, get on the bus, sit, um, get sit on the bus, at any place, because Irene Morgan won her case. You don't have to ride Jim Crow. Jim Crow. No, you don't have to ride Jim Crow. On June the 3rd, the high court said, when you ride in the state, Jim Crow is dead. You don't have to ride Jim Crow. And when you get on the bus, and when you get on the bus, get on the bus, said any place, cause Irene Morgan won her case. You don't have to ride Jim Crow. Who Deserves a Monument is developed, written, and produced by me, Sarah Lonas with sound design, editing, and mixing by Chloe Vantel. Our cover art is by Deshaun Fortune. Ray Arsenault's book is Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice. Robin Washington's documentary is You Don't Have to Ride Jim Crow. I'd like to thank Brenda and Janine Backey. Who Deserves a Monument is a production of Booksmart Media. I'll see you next time for our final episode. <laughs>